0: I remember getting the polio vaccine when it first came out, Uh, the little sugar cube that you would swallow (laughs) in your mouth and get the oral polio vaccine. I remember that. It took place Hmm. in the gymnasium of my high school in my first year. I remember getting vaccinated against smallpox when I went to medical school. We practiced on each other and vaccinated each other against (laughs) smallpox. I'll never forget that, because you're wondering who the person is that's vaccinating you, whether (laughs) they actually know what they're doing. But we were all
1: students, so we learned. This is a voice that you probably recognize by now. That is Dr. Anthony Fauci. He has been a familiar presence for the last three years during the pandemic as he's led the White House COVID response.
0: I also uh, remember very well the, the feeling of, of of accomplishment, I think, when I got my first shot of the COVID vaccine.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: it was a very public affair. It was filmed and I was there with the secretary and we all did it together because it it not only was important to protect me as an individual, but it was also a contribution in my mind to the broad effort to get this under control.
1: For nearly 40 years, Dr. Fauci has been the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. That means that he's led the country through the AIDS crisis, through Ebola, Zika, and of course now COVID. He has advised seven presidents. And next month, he is going to retire. So I wanted to know, what is he thinking about right now? And how is he grappling with all of the attention that he's gotten these last few years? for better or for worse.
0: I would not trade this job for anything, um, hmm. and despite some of the difficulties we've had to face.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, November 3rd. Today, an interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci. We talk about COVID, of course, but we also talk about the future of fighting infectious diseases, including the many viruses that are spreading right now from RSV to the flu. And we talk about hope and science and whether we'll ever get back to that feeling of optimism that Fauci felt as a kid in Brooklyn getting his polio vaccine. So I think at this point in the pandemic, you know that we are all so tired of hearing about COVID. We are tired of hearing about the latest variants. And there is a real sense of pandemic fatigue for those of us just thinking about how to survive all of this. But I'm wondering for you as a scientist, what about COVID is still interesting to you from like an intellectual perspective?
0: We're uh, living in a country in which you're correct there is a lot of covid fatigue people would like to put it behind us and get it into the rearview mirror but in fact it isn't in the rearview mirror we're still although we're doing much much better than we were doing months and a year ago where we were having you know hundreds of thousands close mm-hmm. to 800,000 new infections a day and 3 to 4,000 deaths where down now to three to 400 deaths, which relatively speaking is clearly much better off than we were for a number of reasons, uh, which we can get into. But that's not an acceptable level to be leveling off at and saying we're done with it. So we still have a public health challenge, particularly in the context of going into the cooler months of the late fall and early winter where you always have an uptick of respiratory-borne illnesses. But the scientific challenge, this is such an unusual, unprecedented, infectious disease challenge that we're facing from the standpoint of the virus itself has undergone over the last almost three years multiple evolution of variants, offshoots of the original virus. Which elude the protective mechanisms of prior infection as well as vaccination. Um, we have been uh, assuming from the beginning that we were going to have a big burst of infection. It was going to go down, go away, we get a vaccine, things will be fine. And then we're faced with alpha, beta, delta, omicron <laughs> sublineages.
1: It keeps going and going.
0: Well, yeah, and that's, that's really unprecedented. This virus is one that continues to evolve, and that's the reason why when people ask me, will we ever eradicate this virus, which means drive it off the face of the earth? We've only done that with one virus, and that's smallpox. And mm-hmm. that was because smallpox responds in a very durable way of protecting you from infection by vaccination protection or prior infection protection. It lasts a lifetime. It's not the case with COVID.
1: Hmm. I want to go back to that number that you cited a little bit earlier about the 350 deaths a day right now from COVID here in the U.S. And I think a lot of people are trying to understand what to do with that number because I hear 350 and I think of an auditorium with 350 people in it and that seems like a lot of people. And at the same time, I think a lot of people maybe draw the comparison with other things that kill a not insignificant amount of Americans. I mean, if you think about driving a car, right? About 100 people die a day in the U.S. in car accidents. And yet we as a society like still drive cars. And I think not everyone walks around every day living in fear of a car crash. And, and I just think that these numbers are hard for people to use to assess risk and deciding what is acceptable risk. You have said that 350 deaths a day is an unacceptable number. So talk through that, why you think that, how we should be understanding that, and and what is an acceptable number if any number is acceptable.
0: I think the key issue here that's a bit different from other examples that you've given is that you are dealing with a cause of death that, for the most part, is entirely preventable without a major modification of your life. Mm -hmm. Namely, get vaccinated, get boosted, and if you get infected, take the antiviral drug, and there are several, but the one that's most commonly used is Paxlovid. Now, that's different than saying, well, You have 40,000 people a year who die of car accidents, you should not drive a car. That would be very disruptive of people's lifestyle. So that's tough. So people take the acceptable risk because it's important for their livelihood. You don't have to do a lot to protect yourself against getting seriously ill from COVID. And that's the nuance that I mean about it being unacceptable.
1: Mhm. That the unacceptability is is the the fact that you have so many people who are still either unvaccinated or not fully vaccinated to be able to die at those numbers. But it sounds like what you're saying is that for people who are who are fully vaccinated who have kept up with it and have gotten boosted that that you think that there is an acceptable level of risk to basically going back to life as normal.
0: Yeah, there's one other wild card in this that we have to mention i think we would be negligent in not mentioning it is the issue of long covid mm-hmm. because what's becoming clear now that there are anywhere from 7 to up to 15 or maybe 20 million people who have prolonged symptomatology for weeks to months or longer following the acute phase and recovery from covid And that about a million people, that interferes with their ability to go to work. So one of the things that we don't have a good handle on, on what the long range effect is going to be on people who've been infected, will we be seeing a higher level of heart disease five years down the pike, two years down the pike? We don't know that.
1: And what will it take for that to change? Or are we just left in in a situation where we can anticipate for the next few years we will remain just as in the dark about what this is doing to our bodies? No,
0: I don't think we'll remain in the dark because there's a lot of people now with the effort that is being put into it who are intensively studying this extremely unusual, very mysterious disease to try and get hints about what marker that we have not yet identified. And the more you study it, I believe sooner or later, we'll solve that mystery.
1: I want to ask about some of the other viruses that we are seeing pop up, Um, RSV, Ebola, monkeypox, obviously has been making a lot of headlines this year. Um, Even the fact that polio is apparently back what is your sense of if that's because we are just seeing more viruses? Um, and we're seeing new ways that that new viruses are are popping up? Or is it because we're paying attention now, that we have seen through COVID the way that a uh, particularly nasty virus can really wreak havoc on our lives, and that we're just paying so much more attention than we have ever before to these like invisible things crawling around us?
0: Um I'm going to give you a, as, as concise, but, but it's not an easy single soundbite answer to that because <laughs> there are very different infections that are related to a number of different factors. I think that more awareness of it is a minor component of what we're dealing with. So when you have to look at each infection, And why is there the emergence of it? Overwhelmingly, between 75 and 78% of all the new infections are zoonotic. They jump from an animal species to a human. And when you talk about HIV, that's exactly what happened. You get things like Ebola, which is an encroachment upon the environment, where this is a virus that's the virus of animals that jumps species to humans. SARS-CoV-1 was proven to go from a bat to an intermediate host, and it's very likely that that's exactly what happened with SARS-CoV-2. So although there's, you have to keep an open mind since we don't know exactly how that happened. But that's very different, for example... From polio that you mentioned. Because polio is because people don't get vaccinated. The person mm-hmm. who got polio in New York was from a community that was under vaccinated. So the solution to that is easy get everybody vaccinated against polio, and you and I would not be talking about the reemergence of polio. And then there's the issue of global travel that makes a virus or a pathogen that might emerge in one part of the world. Someone gets on the plane and 18 hours later, it's in a part of the world where you never would have imagined it would be. There are different conditions that allow it to ultimately become a challenge of a human disease.
1: And it seems like some of it is not necessarily our fault and some of it is our fault when it comes to making sure that people are vaccinated or. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Dr. Fauci, the the last time you and I spoke, which was, I think, about a year ago, we had this conversation that I still reflect on now that was um, about how much the pandemic has been politicized and how frustrating that can be. And unfortunately, that hasn't changed or even improved in the last year. And I'm thinking now as we're going into this election on Tuesday, someone who has attacked you and the government's COVID response a lot over the past couple of years is Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. Do you think anybody has had more influence let, over let our response finish. to this
0: than you have? Do you Man, think Adam, it's a great Sierra, success?
1: Do you think it's a great success what's happened what? so far? Do you think you, the lockdowns are said... good for our kids? Do you think we slowed down the death rate? More people have died now under President Biden than did under President Trump. You are the one responsible. You are the architect. You are the lead architect for the response from the right. government. And now 800,000 people have died. Do right. so you think it's a, a winning success, what you've advocated for government? So he is running for reelection. And if he wins and if Republicans take control of the Senate, that guy, Rand Paul, is going to be the head of the Senate's health committee and will have... A pretty significant amount of control over the country's COVID response. So I'm wondering like what you think of the implications of if Senator Paul is reelected, if Republicans take over the Senate, and, and how that political situation affects our country's ability to handle COVID in the future.
0: Well, I'm not going to comment or opine on what will happen if a particular individual elected official, gets in a position of uh, strong influence uh, in, in the Congress. but
1: That is very magnanimous because he's very willing to opine about you.
0: Well, of course, <laughs> he, he, he can do what he wants, but I'm, I'm not going to opine about him except to say that one of the worst things that can happen when you're dealing with an unprecedented outbreak, the likes of which we've not experienced in well over 100 years, which has already claimed the lives of over 1 million Americans, is to inject into the process any ideological issues which sway you one way or another away from good public health principles. We've all got to realize that the common enemy here is the virus. And therefore, we all should be pulling together to encourage our citizenry at the city, state, and federal level, encourage them to abide by good public health practices and get vaccinated as opposed to casting doubt on scientific processes and casting doubt on the efficacy or the safety of vaccines, which have overwhelmingly been proven to be life-saving with data that's incontrovertible and safety data that's incontrovertible. We all should be pushing and encouraging in that direction.
1: After the break, we return to Dr. Fauci's story about getting vaccinated against polio. And we talk about what it would take to get Americans to believe in science again. We'll be right back. I think what strikes me about hearing your – especially your polio vaccine story, and I, I think this is the the vibe I get from a lot of people that I've heard um, who are around your age and have that experience of, of as a kid being, being vaccinated for polio, is that it was just such a moment of – sweeping human achievement, right? Like this was a moment where people were really in awe of the fact that science can do something that will make us all safer. And and it sounds like a very optimistic moment. And I wonder for you if you think we will ever get Back to that place where we as a country or we as a world are kind of together in this moment saying like, "Wow, this is amazing that we have this thing now that can protect protect us against viruses. and if that kind of optimism is is possible again,
0: I hope it is. I really do uh, very much so because I'm troubled by the currently rather substantial and growing Anti science attitude that we have in this country and to some extent throughout the world. There was always some degree of anti science throughout history, but -hmm. the extent to which we're experiencing now is far different from that young boy in Brooklyn, i.e., me, who was there putting that sugar cube in my mouth for an oral polio vaccine because we were all concerned that this frightening disease that was crippling some people we knew which was very frightening would be danger to us but that danger would be eliminated by taking vaccine there was very very little pushback about the recommendations to take the polio vaccine Mm-hmm. and there was very very little pushback about the requirement of taking a polio vaccine in order to stay in school and yet yeah. now there's you know a lot of um misinformation that was not present back then about vaccines some of which are ludicrous you know of them, that Bill Gates and I put chips in vaccines to control people. But then there are others that are just inf- misinformation that people believe, that it causes sterility, mm-hmm. that it does this, that it does that. And we're living in an era where in social media, misinformation and disinformation is very readily spread, which can be very detrimental to an effective public health measure.
1: Yeah uh <laughs> I also wanted to time travel to you at the outset of your career entering into the world of public health and specifically like doing science for the government. I was just having this conversation with my dad who um, was also happened to be a scientist for the government. He's a, a former um, fisheries scientist. And, and he was kind of reflecting on how there have always been challenges in kind of towing that line of science and also understanding that you're part of a of government policy and having to deal with people and people being mad at you or politics affecting the work that you do. But it really seems like those challenges have become so much more acute. And I can imagine that all the future Dr. Fauci's now who are thinking about um, wanting to do science as part of the government, that they're looking at the situation at this moment and saying, why would I want to do that? Like, this seems terrible. People like Dr. Fauci are threatened on a daily basis. And I guess what would your message be to them of why why People should still do these kinds of jobs when they're so much more difficult than ever before.
0: Well, it's interesting that you asked that question because although I am not sure in the venue in which I will be operating when I step down from government service, one of the things that I will concentrate on doing by speaking and by writing is to encourage people. Of why they should be seriously considering public service. And public service in the government, be it the federal or state government, is a very rewarding and impactful position to be in, where you can use your efforts for the common good of society. That overrides the slings and the arrows that one gets. Uh, that seemed to have been intensified lately, the idea that you could serve your country and the citizens of that country and the visitors to that country, and since we are such a world leader in global health that you are indirectly serving the entire world, that kind of feeling of of accomplishment and gratification. In my mind, overrides the negative aspects of it very, yeah. very easily. So, mm-hmm. I, I would not trade this job for anything, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and despite some of the difficulties we've had to face,
1: oh, that's very powerful to hear. Um, my last question has two parts to it. One: Do you have any regrets from your time in this job? And two, are you going to continue to either walk or run five miles a day? Because that is incredibly impressive and I think an inspiration for all of us.
0: Well, if the answer to the, to the second question is yes. I don't run. I used to run marathons and 10Ks all the time. Uh... At my age, uh, when I do that, uh, I get so many pains in my body that <laughs> I walk, but I walk the same distance. So I do that every single day. I have found part of my, my fiber is that I have to exercise. It de-stresses me and gives me a foothold in, in reality a bit to mm-hmm. know that your body still functions very well and it refreshes and clears your mind. Do I have any regrets? You know, in some respects, a regret but that I probably would still do it over again is that I am a certified unapologetic workaholic. Mm -hmm. But with that comes a neglect of some of the other things in life that I would have loved to have done, and that is to spend more time with family. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I... had a family during a time when we were in the very early intensive years of HIV, when we were working 18 hours a day practically with a lot of very sick patients. And I would have liked to have spent more time with my children as they were growing up. Thank goodness they understand that now retrospectively and we have a fantastic relationship in the family. So I'm lucky that that happened. But if I had to do something that I was regretting that I didn't do, it would be to to, to see my children more.
1: Yeah. I think that this is a time when a lot of people have been thinking about time with their family and that we can all sort of relate to, um, you know, making those kinds of priorities because uh, it hasn't been possible for a lot of people for the last few years. So, Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for this conversation. It was so fascinating and and really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me.
1: Dr. Anthony Fauci is, for about another month, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, a job that he has held since 1984. He's also the chief medical advisor to the president. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Sabi Robinson. It was mixed by Sean Carter. And it was edited by Maggie Penman and Alana Gordon. Next Tuesday is Election Day. We will be bringing you the latest news and analysis so you know what to expect next week as results start to roll in. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.